Pick a number between one and three. You win the bullet. Good morning. <coughs> Always winners here. No losers in this bunch. I'll give our brother just a moment to. Pass out the, the bulletins, that too. So none of us misses all the important announcements that we have to offer today. Andrea, how is your family holding up with all the loss that they've encountered in the last month? Stoically. Yeah. My dad is on. He's, he's very pragmatic about things. We so. need to pray. There's some conversations I think that are going to happen because there's been just up in time and just some some statement sense. So just continue to pray. It's been my experience of late to, to realize that uh, God does work in everything, whether we understand it or, or not. Uh, the passing of my wife galvanized my sons together for a commonality in their spirit. So I don't see them coming to church yet, but uh, I think they're working on it. Uh, I talk to them every chance I get. I encourage them. I exhort to them the uh, virtues of uh, following something much greater than yourself. So I would pray uh, for them, and I would encourage all of you to pray for the families, uh, especially those that have lost loved ones in these families that just don't know how to process the passing of a, of a loved one, family member. So keep me in prayer, too, that I, uh, I give wise counsel when asked. Okay, some of our uh, our many uh, announcements today, one through three, is pretty much, uh, we know, uh, offering envelopes we have, in case you haven't gotten yours yet, they're out there in the foyer. Uh, we are continuing with evening service tonight, as of this moment, unless there is a fluctuation in the weather, or in a fluctuation in your temperature. Okay get that straight okay uh, anybody have information on the Lewis's how they're doing Ken and Della is, is if Ken has gone to, to be with his brother Gary lately Dale 
Okay, he's. Okay, you you heard that. Uh, those of you that can get in touch with Della and just offer, uh, you know, even if it's just to go over there and sit with her for a minute, you know. Maybe the driveway needs snow plowed out. Who knows? Uh, groceries, whatever. Um, anybody talk with Tom Roth lately? Nobody yet? Okay. We'll keep Tom in our prayers as well. Uh, any more? Any more? Ed? Well, we designated last week an offering for the Lees, and we did fairly well. We got nearly $700 uh, for the offering, and I think probably in a couple of weeks perhaps we'll do another offering or we'll just open it up for people that want to donate, and then uh, when we get enough money, we'll send that as well. So we're going to see Starla today and, and uh, get some of this money earmarked so that she can get it to the home church. Anything else? Okay, our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, verses 1 through 12, and that'll be page 1016 in your pew Bibles.
Would you stand with us as we begin our service in prayer? Adam, may I prevail upon you once again to lead us. take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 60, 60 in the brown.
scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 33, verses 1 through 20, and it'll be page 53 in your pew Bible. Stand with us when you come to the passage. Genesis 33, 1 through 20. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with his children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his, his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed, and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all of this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in, in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of the Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. 
And on his way from Padam Aram, he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought a hundred pieces of money. He bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. Therefore he erected an altar and called it El Elo Israel. We take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 527. 527 in the brown.
our text today is Genesis 33. Last week we studied how Jacob was isolated by God in the sense that he used Jacob's precautionary measures to isolate Jacob alone. After he had sent his family away and his possessions away to the opposite side of the brook, Jabok. See, Jacob had been alerted by his servants that Esau was coming out to meet him with 400 men. That would be very disconcerting. <laughs> He's hoping to make amends with Esau. You don't need 400 men to, if you have no bad intentions. But at least that's the way it was interpreted. So they were all alone. God came to Jacob in the form of the angel of the Lord and wrestled with him till dawn. This was a spiritual wrestling match to the death. The death of the old sinful deceiver, which is what Jacob's name means. And the rebirth of the man whose name was changed from Jacob to Israel. Well, Jacob hung on and he refused to let go of God until God blessed him. We drew out a number of spiritual lessons there. Spiritual encounters with God come down to a personal encounter alone which God himself initiates. Secondly, once seeing the need of God's salvation, a person must latch on to God and not let go. Too many people give up. They say, oh, I prayed once that the Lord would save me and nothing happened. Yeah, well, maybe there was a lack of sincerity in the prayer. Thirdly, we learned it's better to forfeit one's body part, in the case of Jacob, his hip, than to have the whole body cast into hell. You remember the angel of the Lord dislocated his hip, and for the rest of his life he lived with that limp. But it was a reminder, Jacob, you're no longer a deceiver. You're now Israel, the prince of God. And that's the fourth link that we learned that his new name confirmed for us that in salvation God grants us a new nature which truly sees God. And that's what happened with Jacob. Today's study we come to his, this dreaded reunion with Esau. It is dreaded because the last time they parted company it was not on good terms. So as we come to the scriptures today, let's ask for the Lord to bless us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. And thank you for even this struggle that we see between these two brothers. It reminds us that, you know, filial ties aren't all that they could be. Sometimes there are struggles in family and sometimes the struggles are spiritual. One person is in one spiritual category and the other is not. And 
our people right here have experienced that with family members. They want so badly that the rest of their family come to know Christ and the joy of his salvation, the peace of heart and the promise of sins forgiven and heaven as the prize of Jesus' work. But they fight it all the way and that makes it tough. We don't give up because we know that there's salvation only in one person and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't know it, but we know it. And so we plowed on and we thank you for that. Help us not to give up. Be tenacious like Jacob. We'll praise you for what you'll teach us today as we talk about Jacob's reunion with his estranged brother Esau. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, as noted in the prayer, we're going to talk about this reunion of Jacob with his brother. The first thing we observe is that he took precautionary measures in anticipation of meeting with his brothers. What a startling sight it must have been, as Moses indicates in verse 1, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. What a sight. You look up, and there's this army coming at you. Does Jacob have 400 men? Hardly. But Esau does. Jacob had been alerted to this reality back in chapter 32, verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Okay, but now now that the reality has come, it does not make it any easier on Jacob's nerves to have to face the obvious. And what is the obvious? The obvious was that Jacob is a family of two wives, two concubines, 11 children, and just enough servants to manage the various herds of livestock that Jacob owned. In other words, he is literally outnumbered hundreds to one, and the largest part of his entourage is women and children. Hardly a match against 400 men. I can't even conceive of this. There is literally zero chance to mount a defensive strategy against so formidable a force. This will be a slaughter for sure if Esau still has vengeance in his heart towards Jacob. That said, Jacob did what he knew to do, what he was capable of doing with the resources and know-how that he had at his disposal. There's no brook to form a water barrier this time to shield his family from his brother's anticipated rage. So he resigns himself in faith to divide the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants, verse 1, 
Those maidservants were his concubines, that is, his lesser wives. Verse 2 gives us the order. Concubines and their children out in the front. Leah and her children next. Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Many commentators believe that Jacob is playing the deceiver here again. Using his wits in place of faith to protect his beloved Rachel and Joseph. But this makes no sense in light of the overwhelming force of 400 men at Esau's disposal. Think of it. First in line to meet Esau, or last in line hmm, to meet him in about 60 seconds more. (laughs) What is that against 400 men? Slaughtered first or slaughtered second, so you're still dead. (laughs) So how's that any advantage? I believe instead that this is not a fear move on Jacob's part, but a faith move. Finally, his new name And his new nature behind the name change is taking over. Yes, he is Jacob to Esau, the deceiver. But he is Israel to God. And his actions here evidence a true faith that God had heard his prayer to save his family. Made back in 32 verse 11. And God was about to be faithful to his promise made to Jacob, chapter 31, verse 3, wherein God commanded him to go back to the land of his fathers with this promise, I will be with you. Chapter 32, verse 9. I will be with you. Well, if God is going to be with Jacob in this Return to Canaan. There's no possibility of him and his family being exterminated by his angry brother or any other foe. Would you believe God if God said that to you? His brother's coming out. The servants have already reported. He's got 400 men with him. Yeah, but God said he's going to be with me. It is a faith move. It is required. Observe further that prior to his last attempt to shelter his family from Esau's possible murderous rage, Jacob sent expensive gifts ahead to Esau to try to appease his anger, get him to cool down a little bit. And he located his family and all of his servants beyond the brook Jabbok while he remained Behind and alone. Chapter 32, verse 11. But where is Jacob now as he prepares to meet Esau? Verse 3. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Jacob is not cowering 
in the back of the line. No, he's out front. He's ready to face, come what may, his estranged brother. Now, he didn't know what to expect, but he was trusting God to save him and his family and to keep his promise to get Jacob back home to Canaan in safety. What then could be the reason for dividing his family with the concubines and their children out first and then Leah and her children and last Rachel and Joseph? Well, Jacob is still showing favoritism to Rachel, that's for sure. Saying, as it were, I'm saving the best for last. As he presented his wives and his children to Esau. And you will recall that in later life, it was still Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph, which resulted in the brothers hating Joseph and selling him into Egyptian slavery. So this is an ongoing thing with him. But what a surprise in Esau's reaction to this meeting with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob is bowing and scraping seven times over as he approached Esau. All signs of humility, all signs of repentance for his past ways of treating his brother. Esau, for his part, verse 4, ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept together. Twenty years. Twenty years had passed between these two brothers and in all that time there had been no communication, no reconciliation whatsoever. They had parted in fear and anger. Jacob fleeing in fear of his life and Esau so angry for being disenfranchised from the estate by Jacob's trickery that he had vowed to kill Jacob after Isaac, their father, was deceased. I'll bide my time, but Dad's going to die one of these days, and when he does, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill my brother for what he did. What we look at this, and we, <laughs> it appears that none of this seems to matter now. The years of time have taken their toll, both on Jacob's fear and Esau's murderous intent, and we may not forget God's promise intervention. So as Esau perused the various concubines and their children, and then there was Leah and her children, and finally Rachel, he was curious as to who they were. And Jacob acknowledged them as gifts of God given to him, verse 5. In other words, their station in Jacob's family did not seem to matter. Firstborn, secondborn, children of concubines, wives duly official through marriage, or children of two wives, Leah and Rachel, or Joseph, child of the beloved Rachel. 
None of this changed the fact that all 11 of them were the children of God had graciously given Jacob. That's the way he words it. In those 20 years that there's been this separation from Esau. And they had been at odds another, at one another for all that time. So even estrangement between these brothers did not mean that God had deprived them of families and personal happiness. If you want to read about Esau's extensive family, you'll find it in Genesis 36. There's a chapter that talks about all of his children. Each of these men could vouch for the blessings of God, though only one acknowledged God. I think that's interesting. Both of them are blessed by God, but only one acknowledges God. The passing of years, the many miles which separated them, had not robbed them of their filial blessings from God and provisions and sustenance and, yes, even wealth. But they were separated from each other in fear and anger and with hatred in their hearts. So we note next that Jacob compensated Esau for his lost inheritance. I mean, think about this. Once these brothers were reconciled, Esau asked, verse 8, What do you mean by all these droves that I met coming up? That's a reference to Jacob assigning his servants, chapter 32, 17. When my brother meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord. To you, Esau. And he's coming behind us. That Jacob's coming. So you see, assuming that Jacob's servants had already explained the origin and purpose of this large number of animals, it might seem redundant for Esau to ask another question in verse 8. But note carefully the way Esau phrased the question. Here it is. He did not ask whose animals these were. Nor did he question that these were a gift to him from his brother Jacob. No. Those questions had already been answered. What he asked is this, verse 8. Jacob, what do you mean by all these droves that I met? In other words, they're has to be an explanation as to why Jacob would give Esau such a costly gift. Answer. To find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Verse 8. Which seems a bit obscure to us, but which was crystal clear to Esau. How does a costly gift compute with Jacob's desire to find favor in Esau's eyes. Well, 
what Esau well remembers about Jacob's departure 20 years earlier. He had reiterated to Isaac, his father, saying, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Chapter 27, verse 36. So Jacob is viewed by Esau as a cheat and a robber who, through trickery and deceit, had stolen Esau's headship over the clan and his fortune. So Jacob is pictured then as a greedy, unrelenting man who was willing to use any and all means to enrich himself, even if it meant impoverishing his own brother. So what's going on in our text some 20 years later? Hmm. What is the meaning behind the droves of animals and Jacob's servants deposited at Esau's tent. Well, it is a peace offering from Jacob. He says so. To find favor in your eyes, Esau. To compensate Esau for any and all losses that he might have experienced because of Jacob's trickery and greed. Now, Esau initially declined this offer. Look at verse 9. I already have plenty, he tells his brother. I already have plenty. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob, I don't need this. I'm well off. But Jacob pressed his point. Verse 10. No, please. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept the gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably. The idea being that as God had just done for Jacob. Chapter 32 verse 30. In verse 11. Please accept this present. That was brought to you for God has been gracious to me. And I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted. Esau accepted it. The Hebrew word here for present. Please accept this present. Is the fact that. The reality is in our text that Jacob is repaying Esau. For what he now confesses had been a stolen blessing from Esau. It's the same word found in 27 and verse 36 where Esau complained to Isaac that Jacob had tricked him by taking his blessing. So Jacob is saying, I'm giving it back. It's the same word. I'm giving it back. He's making restitution. And this harks back to 32 and verse 13 in which Jacob spent the night there and from that and from what he had with him he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 
And if you look at the gift, and if you count it up, I did. 550 head of livestock. Now that's not a little bit of gift. That's enough for a person to maintain himself and have a business all his life. So this is the sizable attempt on Jacob's part to rest have restitution. In short, Jacob did the math. He calculated what a reasonable profit in livestock Esau would have made had Jacob not cheated him out of the family blessing. And Jacob compensates Esau with the percentage of material blessings with which God had blessed him all the years they were apart. He's making restitution. That shows us there really has been a change in Mr. Deceiver's heart. He's a changed man. He's a new man. He's no longer wheeling, dealing, and thinking now, how can I trick Esau? into accepting me without me going broke. No. It's not thinking that way at all. Finally, after all of this, there it led to the parting of Esau and Jacob on amicable terms. In verse 12 and following, Esau proposed to accompany Jacob the rest of the way on his journey, but Jacob begged off on the basis, well, you know, the children are young. They can't travel very speedily. Same for the young livestock, which are still nursing. He says in verse 13, if they are driven hard just, just one day, all those animals are going to die. I can't, I can't afford that, and I don't want that. So next, Esau offered some of his men to accompany Jacob which he also declined, saying, oh, just, just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. Only thing I'm asking, are, are we okay? Is it cop- are we copacetic? Verse 15. And verse 16 tells us, Esau then went on his way back to Seir. South, Seir is southeast of the Dead Sea. If you have a map, you can look at, on that on your map. Go south, east, and you'll find Seir. But the scripture says Jacob turned westward to a town he built for himself, which he named Succoth, S-U-C-C-O-T-H, means shelters. And he named it that way because there he built holding pens for all of his livestock. It's going to protect them from the elements and so forth in Succoth. From Succoth, Jacob arrived safely, that's an answer to God's promise, at the city of Shechem in Canaan, and he camped within sight of the city. Verse 8. For a hundred pieces of silver, he purchased a plot of land large enough to pitch a tent, but not large enough to build an estate. And there he set up an altar with 
the name El Elohe Israel, mighty is the God of Israel. Faith move. Mighty is my God. I'm Israel. Mighty is the God of Israel. We might ask, well, what about Jacob's lie on this occasion? I mean, he told Esau, verse 14, that he would go to Seir to be with Esau, when obviously he had no intention of doing so. Seir is southeast, whereas Succoth is southwest, and Shechem from Succoth is northwest. This goes to prove that <laughs> even God's people can fall back into their old sinful patterns for whatever reason Jacob chose to lie to Esau instead of being up front with him but to his credit Jacob was not about to be pressured by his brother to go to Seir when God had commanded him no you return to Canaan to Palestine I didn't need to lie about it. But he was, in fact, obeying what God had told him to go. I read things like this in the Old Testament, and I think, do we really have problems in our family? You know? We think we do. Brothers against brothers, sisters fighting, husbands and wives having angry words with one another. Let me tell you, these things that these men are experiencing affects their family, their livelihood, their future. These are life changing situations that they endured and went through. And they have a lot to teach us. That's my next point. What are the lessons that we are to take to heart from Esau and Jacob's reunion? Well, I think one lesson to learn is that God will sometimes place us in an overwhelming, hostile situations to teach us that our protection is in God. Why Esau traveled all the way from Seir, that's southeast of the Dead Sea, to meet Jacob with 400 men is uncertain. Why did he bring that large entourage? Well, Perhaps the trade routes used in those days were fraught with pirates and thieves and murderers. So you, you traveled with force. Perhaps he too was apprehensive about Jacob's capabilities. Maybe Jacob had a mighty force too. He doesn't know. We don't know. All we know is that Esau was well armed and the whole thing was frightening to Jacob and his family because they had no army of men to protect him 
they only, and I say this with tongue in cheek, they only had God's promised protection. Hmm. Jacob, as it were, was boxed in to God's providence. God would have to step in. God would have to resolve any hostilities. And you can see that this alternative required faith in God to come through with his promise. Not everyone has this kind of faith, but for those who do, it'll calm your heart and dispel your fears. Well, God promised me he's going to be with me and get me back to Canaan. So let my brother come out and meet me. It doesn't matter how many people he brings with him. I'm going to end up where God said so. You know, in the days of Elisha, the kingdom of, the kingdom of Aram was at war with Israel. And every time the king of Aram set up an ambush... The scripture says, time and again, Elisha warned the king of Israel, that is, so that he was on his guard in such places. 2 Kings 6, verse 10. Think about that. Verse 11 says, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his offers. He demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? What's he saying? He's saying the only reason Elisha can possibly be ready with his troops when we come out looking for him is that one of you guys is, you're talking to him. You're secretly letting him know where we're going next. So he brings his officer in and he lays it out on the table. In the days of Elisha, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. But every time, time and again, Elisha warned the king of Israel so that he was on his guard. His command is, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? The only reason we're not winning this war is because one of you is a spy. And you're telling the king of Israel what we're up to and when we're up to it. Well, those commanders answered, None of us, my lord. We're, we're not giving out secret information to Elijah. None of us, my lord, the king said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Hmm. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. And the report came back, well... Elisha is in Dothan. 2 Kings 6, verse 11 following. So his men tell him, 
Well, the reason the army of Israel knows where you are and where you're coming from and what your next move is because this prophet, Elisha, he tells the king, his king, what you think about and say in your bedroom. You read your mind, prophesize. Well, true to his word, the king of Aram then sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went up by night and they surrounded the city, Second Kings 6.14. So Elisha and the people living in Dothan became captives in an overwhelming hostile environment with seemingly no way of escape. Elisha's servants became terrified and they said to Elisha, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? You and I would likely be scared out of our bones as well. A large, well-equipped army at hostile soldiers against a small town of ordinary, defenseless citizens? How's that going to work? I don't know if you saw in the news. And they showed it. Putin going into Ukraine with his tanks. What did he do with his tanks? He rolled over people in their cars that were trying to escape before the Russian soldiers came in. He, they rolled over their cars with people in those cars to crush them to death. kind of person Putin was well let me tell you he doesn't have anything on these Old Testament kings who slaughtered everybody and so Elisha is boxed in the army's coming why would God permit such a thing to happen to his people what was Elijah's reaction? Was he shaking in his boots? Was he pacing the floor? Was he wringing his hands, repeating ominous woes? Oh my, oh this is terrible. Oh we are about to be exterminated in the flash. What recourse do we have? We are all doomed. No, there was none of that. Instead, Elisha calmed his fearful servant saying, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What do you mean? Second Kings 6, verse 16. And then he prayed. Elisha's praying. Oh Lord. Open his eyes. He's talking about his servant. Open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow. And as the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike them with blindness. So he struck them with blindness 
as Elisha had asked. 2 Kings 6, verse 6, 17. The context shows that Elisha led these blind soldiers to the capital city of Samaria, where once inside, God opened their eyes to reveal, oh, wow, uh, they were now the captives. How'd that work? King of Israel, boy, this is great. Let's just kill them all. This is great. Way to go, Elisha. No, Elisha intervened. The captives were fed and released to what? To go home. What? Who does that with an enemy? To go home? The same thing happened again in Jerusalem under the siege by Sennacherib. Daniel in the lion's den. His friends in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar proving to all of us the wisdom of Israel's warnings. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitudes of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or ask help from the Lord. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Our protection ultimately, brethren, is God. It's not our armaments, it's not our rockets, it's not our guns. It's not our armies, our air force, our navy. None of these things. Secondly, we learn that faith works with reason leading us to take every precautionary measure to protect our families from evil. I think that's important. If Jacob, now named Israel, was a man of faith since his encounter with God, why did he protect his family from the assumed rage of his vengeful brother by sending him across the brook Jabbok? And later, as he put them at the rear of his vast herds of livestock, far out of the reach of Esau, why is he going through all of this? Or to ask it another way, is it a lack of faith in God to take such precautionary measures? Are we failing to trust in God when we do that? There's always, brethren, this tension between faith and human actions. But is it right to pit these two against one another. Fortunately, fortunately, there's an entire book in the New Testament dedicated to this very issue. It is the book of James. Here's the scenario. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Hmm. Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, Oh, go, I, I wish you well. Keep warm, stay well, 
get well fed. What's that? He's, he's giving the guy a benediction. Lord bless you as you go away. Hope you get some food. May the Lord give you some clothes to wear too. He's passing out benedictions, but he does nothing about the physical needs. And James says, what good is that? Oh, well, I think it's good. We ought to pray for one another. We ought to bless them. Mm-mm-mm. No, James says, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead faith. James 2, 14 and following. And in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, says James, so faith without deeds is dead. Boy, could we get that in our psyche? Faith without deeds is dead faith. And dead faith is no faith. James is teaching us that faith in God is not negated by righteous deeds, but is actually proven and confirmed by such. We do what we know to be right and sane and reasonable, and that proves our faith to be genuine. Right now in the USA, a debate is raging on the provision of the Second Amendment. You know what the Second Amendment? Let me read it for you. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. End quote. And the argument is put to believers that we cannot possibly believe in God if we practice arming ourselves with a weapon to protect ourselves or our family. Well, you know, where's your faith? I've heard that so many times. God's word, however, tells us that there is such a thing as evil men in the world. People in positions of authority who will use their power to exterminate, not the bad guys, which would be their task, their God-given task, but anyone and everyone who would oppose their wicked plans. In Chicago, the mayor of Chicago has been releasing felons out of the jails into the streets. And there's already been murders by those felons. What is she thinking? Well, she's not thinking. She is emoting. Well, we don't want to keep them in prison forever. That's not nice. They go out and kill people. That's not nice either. In fact, that's horrific. Our modern world has been in two world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnamese War, the Gulf War, and every other more localized skirmishes. 
Additionally, we now face Islamic Jihad, wherein Christians are beheaded or burnt alive in steel cages. I don't know if you remember that. And for refusing to conform to Sharia law. Putin's tanks were photographed leaving the roadside, the roadway going into Ukraine to run over people in their cars. The people in their cars were trying to get out of the way so the tanks could go through and the tanks just rolled over them to crush them. These atrocities have not escaped the notice of God, who for purposes known only to him, he is allowed to go on. Maybe it's to purge his church for sin. Maybe it's to wake us up to the fact there is such a thing as evil in the world. We talk about it. Do we really know it? Everyone wants to quote Jesus' words to Peter. Put your sword back in its place, they quoted. He did say that. For all who draw the sword, the aggressor, if he's drawing the sword, will die by the sword. Matthew 26, verse 52. They like to quote that. Say, see? Here it is. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't whip out your sword. Don't be doing that. But they ignore or forget Jesus teaching the night of his betrayal by Judas and his arrest by the government authorities. And what did Jesus say that night? Luke 22, verse 35 and following. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? In other words, when I sent you out on this mission trip to give the gospel to people, did, did, did that cause you to lack anything? Nothing, they answered. We did not lose anything. He said to them, but now 